0: That was very good. Very good. All the girls. Just did really wonderful today. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. If you would please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We have two verses there we'll begin with in uh, verses 1 and 2. Talk about family. And today's message is titled, All in the Family. We do have a family of God. I'm so glad to be part of the family of God. Amen. And Praise the Lord. Um, he has brought us into fellowship with Him. And we can call Him Father... And uh, we are co-heirs with Christ. The family is a concept that our culture struggles uh, to understand. They they very much do. Uh, The family. A father, a mother, brothers, and sisters. You know, family relationships in our culture, in our day, are so negatively affected uh, to too many things. Absentee parents, unknown parents, addictions, the strife. um, And so many people in our culture don't understand what a family is supposed to look like. They don't understand how family members are to relate to one another. And that idea of a father, for example, it's very foreign to many people in our day. And and as we refer to to God as God our Father, we go out to talk to unbelievers about about God. Um, A lot of times they'll just return a blank stare. They aren't quite understanding. Uh, Because to tell a man or a woman who grew up as an orphan or without a father uh, how deep the father's love is for us uh, potentially brings that reply, what is a father's love? What does that look like? I've never had a father. I've never really experienced a father. I'd like to know what a father's love is like. And And a lot of times they don't understand what you are telling them. And, and we've had a generation that has passed that has, has attempted to help people in understanding on television. You know, if you remember the Cleavers on Leave It to Beaver. Many of us saw reruns of that. Many of us saw the first airing, I know. Excellent show, but in the 1960s, we were taught through that storyline how a trustworthy father figure, his name is Ward, how he cares for his family. He has breakfast with his family every day. Goes off to work. He's a trustworthy figure. And, and he'd return home every night faithfully with his wife June. And, and then he'd spend his spare time, you remember, teaching those life lessons to the boys Wally and the Beave. He'd spend his time with them. And, and people would see, you know what, that's how a family is supposed to behave. And we learn from that. that. That's good programming. But Leave it to Beaver was was also perfectly idealistic. It it really was somewhat unrealistic for many who were watching, probably most. In fact, it was simply unachievable for so many. And and later on in the 1970s, many found a a television show that was much easier to relate to. Uh, It's a dysfunctional family that was portrayed in the widely popular All in the Family, if you remember that. In exaggerated humor, we saw the irritable father, Archie Bunker, who would be short-tempered. He complained about everything and to everyone who bothered him. He had his naive and loyal wife, Edith, his spoiled daughter, Gloria, his liberal son, Mike, whom he affectionately referred to as Meathead. And they were always on the receiving end of Archie's unrelenting insults. Unfortunately, some of that sarcasm, the realism of it, of this dysfunctional family, it resonated well with America. It was one of the top, at that time, the top television show in the 70s. And uh, this was as people tried to recover from the 60s and and all the intracultural conflicts of that hippie culture, Vietnam, the racism. People were trying to come out of that. And then we experienced a very brief period of perfect utopia while I was in high school in the 80s. But then that quickly gave way the pressures of the extreme views of feminism, gave rise to the sexual revolution and beyond. Ultimately, it forced and fueled the moral decadence that we see in televisions today. And people are looking at most of these shows that portray what is called a modern family. It's so distorted, so perverted, that America really has no idea anymore what a family is supposed to look like. They have no clue how it's supposed to function. The results are so tragic, it it bemoans us as Christians to see what has happened to our great nation. Fortunately, for the benefit of our culture, there remains one institution Americans can look to in order to see what a family is supposed to, how it's supposed to properly function. The church. The church is how a family is supposed to properly function. Function. And we're going to talk about that today. That is right. Jesus looked out to those who were following him, saying, Behold, my mother and my brothers, by implication, sisters. And Jesus was even willing to place in a special category those who followed him, even in contrast to his own blood brothers. And he did so to emphasize the importance of the eternality of those spiritual relationships in the church as people will spend eternity with one another, not just a few decades. It's not temporal. It's an eternal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, with our Father, and with one another. And the qualification Jesus offers to identify his true brothers and sisters, you know, they're not those who just call him Lord by name. He doesn't give that qualification. After saying, behold, my mother and my brothers, Jesus immediately qualifies that. For whoever does the will of my Father, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Christ's family, the mother, the brothers, the sisters, consists of those who obey the Father's will. It's why Jesus says in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Yet, but do not do what I say. And the ability to first understand Christ commands, what He has taught us, that ability, accompanied by a compelling heart desire to obey, is the indication you're a genuine member of Christ's family. It, it, it indicates the spiritual regeneration of the heart that is alive to God. Uh, make no mistake, no one is saved by their works. They're evidenced, though, by their works. They're evidenced by a renewed heart. And there's a profound passage found in chapter 6. You may want to leave your Bible ribbon in 1 Timothy 5 and turn to John chapter 6. I'll be there for some time. Jesus expounds on the peril of not understanding who he is and the necessity of being with him in his family requirement of being in the family. And in this context, a great debate is raging. It's been raised about Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? They're asking. Who is he? Who is his family? Who really was his family? That was a question that was in this text. And it caused many who had been following him to waver, not understanding who Jesus was, who his family was, and there were large crowds of disciples that had been following Jesus, general term disciples there crowds of them and When the claim was made that there was really nothing you know special about Jesus by the religious leaders there 's nothing special about him that he was simply the son of Joseph and Mary. The question is asked Do you really want to be his brother or his sister? Do you even really know who this man is that you've been following around? See, people were sowing seeds of doubt about Jesus. And Jesus, of course, never for afraid of controversy, never afraid of controversy, says to these so called disciples that were following him Many of doubt, many no doubt, by this time were calling him Lord by name. He says to them, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in Him. How's that for a church growth mechanism? Strange. That's what they were saying. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit and Scripture have enabled us, and, and they've they provided us with understanding that the fulfillment of this command was going to be realized through brothers and sisters in Christ who would partake in the Lord's Supper. There would be a fulfillment. But the folks in John chapter 6, when they're looking at this, they could not receive this strange teaching. And they became discouraged. And and the false teachers were there speaking into their ears, discouraging them and saying, you know, this guy, he's just a carpenter's son. That's all he is. So many, actually most who are in this group, began to doubt Jesus and his identity. And John 6, verse 60 says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? And Jesus continued to say, There are some of you who do not believe. And the narrative continues to read, For Jesus knew from the beginning that they, who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. Friends, Jesus is never caught by surprise. Ever. And the passage continues with Jesus saying this, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. God's stumbling block is a big block to people. It removes the human intellect, the human merit. It takes it completely out of the equation of faith and salvation. And it leaves us with nothing left to bolster our pride about. It's not about us, it's about Him. Faith isn't something we conjure up. Ephesians 2.8.9 says it's a gift of God, not a result of works. People here didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't like what He, excuse me, what he was saying. They were being told by Je- about Jesus that He's nothing special. You know, He's just a regular old guy. John 6, verse 66 says this, As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Isn't that amazing? They departed from Christ... Because they had a wrong view of Christ. And the Father had never actually drawn them in the first place. They were hanging out. And God was never their Father. By the way, how does anyone naturally become a member of a family? By being born into it, right? Being born into the family. Hold on to that thought. But those who actually were in the family of God here remained. Jesus says in verse 67, and this is formulated as a question which is usually read with this type of tone. So Jesus said to the twelve, notice how it distinguishes the twelve from all the droves, the numbers, the crowds of disciples. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And people misread the emphasis of this question as if Jesus fears that these twelve actually might depart. It said, you don't want to go away also, do you? And and that can lead to such an unfortunate misinterpretation of this passage. Because we were just told in verse 64 that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, even he who was going to betray him. Jesus knew. He's the sovereign God and creator of the universe. He wasn't taking a straw poll. He wasn't wondering who's going to leave, who's not going to leave. Twice in this passage, you can read it for yourself. Uh, put a mark there and l- read the whole chapter six later on. We see in verses 44 and 65 twice Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father." No one. There's perhaps no greater validation in Scripture of the total depravity of man and the inability of a man to save himself. Romans 3.10 affirms, as it is written, there is none righteous, there is not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, there is not even one. And being drawn as brothers and sisters into the family of of Christ, it's a divine function of God and His Holy Spirit, it's not our function. There's no question in Scripture that Jesus realized exactly who is believing and who is not believing. Exactly who will defect, who will not defect, exactly who will betray. Jesus knows it all. So when Jesus posed this question to the twelve, he isn't saying it in this tone. You do not really want to go also, do you? No. No, Jesus, I don't believe that at all. It isn't as if he doesn't know, because in Christ there is no deceit. He doesn't play mind games like we do. Um, It's not in his heart to be a deceiver. Not Jesus. I believe Jesus looks at the twelve and says to them, exactly as it is, you don't want to leave also, do you? He knew. You don't want to leave also. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what you are. And to be certain that the 12 do not get the mistaken notion that that they somehow, out of their own wisdom, out of their own ability, came to Christ, in verse 70 he says, Jesus answered them, saying, Did I myself not choose you, the 12? I chose you to come into my family. And their only possible response could be, yes, Jesus, you did choose us. And Jesus reminds them again in John 15, 16, later on in the same book, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And there's a very similar tone in this passage as in Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus said to the twelve, again the twelve, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered again, always first. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Again, no one can come to the Father unless they are drawn. And, And God the Father reveals Jesus' identity to those folks that are being drawn. No one can come to Jesus and be placed in the family of God Scripture says, unless it's granted to him by the Father. How did we say you earlier, when we talked earlier, you become a member? By being born into a family. Jesus says in John 3.3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The wind or spirit, Numa. The Spirit blows where He wishes, and you hear the sound of Him. But you do not know where He comes from or where He is going. So it is everyone, not just some, so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You you might ask, why have I taken this diversion over from 1 Timothy chapter 5? Why have I gone over here? It's because if you don't know how you entered the family of God, then you don't know how everyone else entered the family of God. And you don't realize how others have entered the family of God because God wanted them in the family of God. And how are we going to value and appreciate God's family if we don't see that He wanted them in the family of God? Each person here who is saved, and that might not include all of us, but each person here who are a true Christian are not here today because we share a similar taste in music or we like the decor. We have other preferred commonalities amongst us. We are here in God's family because we have a common Father who brought us into the family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Spirit of God convicted us of our sins. John sixteen eight, The Spirit of God rebirthed us spiritually, John 3.6. The Spirit of God regenerated our hearts, Titus 3.5. And the Holy Spirit made us alive to Christ, 1 Peter 3.18. And then by this Holy Spirit, God Himself, we were baptized, that means deposited into this one body. Into the one body. And God said, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has placed the members, each one of them, into the body just as He desired. Just as He wanted them put in. And in context here, Paul is describing and speaking to the local church, the local assembly in Corinth. Not talking universal church here. He's talking about a local church of people. A local assembly of Christ. We are members of one another and members of the church because brought, God brought us here. He put us here. It's not by preferences. It's not by what we do. And you know, we hear that people don't want to be a member of a local church. They say you don't have to be a member of the local church. You can float from church to church. There's really no membership in Scripture of the local church. I hope you attend uh, the Bible Life Group that's about to start, where we're going to talk about being a member of a church, our responsibilities of being a member. And, And I have no idea where people get the impression, it's not from the Bible, that you don't become a member of a local church. You can't find that in the Bible. You can't defend that from the Bible. There are different ideas about what formal membership looks like on paper, because of our modern society. But in the Bible, it's broadly presented over and over that Christians identify themselves with brothers and sisters. Your identity is with your local church. And as we talk about the, new, the membership in Bible Life Group and, and formal membership having the course later on in the summer, probably towards fall, um, Christians are not floaters. We see that way too much in our day. I really hope that you're able to come early for the Bible Life Group so we can talk about what is a church member. That's a question asked. We're not just talking about on paper, having a piece of paper, but what functionally is a church member? And um, it, it's not to come and hang out for a season, enjoy the music. When you tire of that, go to another place and enjoy their music. That's not what a member of a church looks like. That's not why God brought us here. It's not about us. It's about the family of God. It's about the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about Jesus. That's what we're really here for. And uh, that's a different sermon for a different day on membership. But each Christian here is here because God places here. We're not called to view one another as people that we may or may not want to be around for a while or for a season. Not someone whom we just share some peripheral ideas, some peripheral ideas, Um, things that we like, that we enjoy together. Not a social club that you become a member of, you become part of for a while. It's not a gun club, but you might want to belong to a gun club. But that's not what we share in common. It's not peripheral things. It is Christ Himself that we share in common. And we're called to value one another as precious brothers and sisters in Christ whom He chose to lay down His life for to bring us into the family. And we're members In 1 Corinthians it says of the same body, the head of whom is Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. And this truth really, as we look at brothers and sisters here in this chapter 5, it really ought to make us think differently about others who are in the body. That God brought them here. And and think differently about a, a sobering assessment of our responsibilities to Christ's body. That's what we'll be looking at. And I bring this all up mainly because we're entering this new section in chapter 5 of First Timothy. And this is going to present us in the coming weeks with some really eye-opening clarity concerning our social behavior in the church. And we'll talk about how we treat one another, how we care for the poor among us. We'll talk about exhibiting mutual concern for one another, how we don't take advantage of the church. How we refrain from becoming uh, busybodies. Even how we're held accountable to the body. And because he is now transitioning to social topics in the Bible, Paul begins chapter 5 with with just two verses. These are very broad in nature. They paint a very broad brushstroke of brothers and sisters. And and then next week in verse 3, Paul dives into the details of how how this all works out. But please look with me in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I'm going to read these first two verses that Paul gives, providing instructions to Timothy, the local pastor. He writes, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, to the younger women as sisters, in all purity. It says, Do not sharply rebuke an older or an elderly man. The Greek term here for elder or, or older man, some translations say, it's very similar to the, to the terminology that's used other places in Scripture to describe a church elder. Um, we discussed that in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. But there, it was describing the office of elder a different thing. Here, the immediate context of family relationships reveals that this is not a church elder, uh, per se. Here, it refers to someone generally who is older or who is elderly. And we also know this because the identical Greek word here is used for the mother in verse 2. So we know we're not talking about church elders. We're talking about those who are elderly. And uh, this is an elderly man. And what we see here is a very patriarchal society in the Bible. These people had respect for their elders. We should do that here too. We should respect our elders. Age receives respect automatically. And, and it doesn't indicate here that, that elderly men uh, may never be corrected. That they can never be wrong and they're, they're not able to be corrected in any way. It indicates the manner by which he is corrected. And anyone who in the church is in error error doctrinally or behaviorally, uh, anyone receives appropriate correction. Scripture says to do so without any spirit of partiality. Concerning proper behavior, Paul told Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Even if the situation merits in Titus 1, reprove severely. But sharply rebuking an elderly man, that isn't pleasant. It isn't dignified. Instead, Timothy said, appeal to him as a father. And for example, I remember when my own dad was failing. He was getting late in life, quite old. He was using poor judgment on a few things. And uh, love him to death. It wasn't normally spiritual things, but he had some error. Driving was one of them. Um, Yet as my father, I didn't want him to suffer embarrassment in front of the family. I didn't want him to be shamed in front of others. Uh, But if an elderly man is erring in sin, corresponding to driving, if an elderly man is, is erring in sin, it's not healthy to permit that elderly man to keep driving. It's not healthy to let him continue in error. But the best way to address an older man is to call him alone and make the appeal in private. And, and as you would your own father, you'd spare his, his reputation. And, and he, would, he would be able to maintain his respect. Because the older people in a society, they deserve our respect. They deserve our respect. So the best way to address an older man is to make a private appeal You keep him from suffering embarrassment. Afterward, if he decides to make it a public issue, well, I guess that's on him. Hey, he's telling me I can't drive. What do you think? "Uh, You can't drive. (laughs) But we should attempt to keep correction of older men respectable. And the key word for interacting with older men here is respect today. For the younger men, we're told to appeal to them as we would a brother. A brother. You know, a brother, he isn't normally as concerned about the respect as he is concerned about outright honesty. A brother wants you to be honest with him. And a younger man, which would be a brother, would want he'd be able to handle some criticism. he still still try to do so privately. But if a brother has a booger hanging from his nose, he wants to know he's got a booger hanging from his nose. He wants to know about it. So you just tell him straight up, brother, you've got a booger hanging from your nose. For goodness sake, wipe it away. Because we want our brother to succeed. We want our sisters to succeed. We want to elevate them so we'd appeal to them as a brother. And we want them to excel. We don't want them to suffer embarrassment. We don't necessarily want to kick him while he's down. We surely don't go to everyone else and say, hey, look what he's got on his nose. You don't snap a picture and put it on Facebook. No, you appeal to him as a brother. You have concern and care for your brother. Key word for brothers is not as much respect as it is reputation. We want to preserve our brother's reputation. This is why in Matthew 18 we see, when you see your brother sin, Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And we see it says in private. Very clearly, Matthew 18 provides instructions for, for sins that have been contained. And they're still private. Hasn't leaked out. Now, especially one-on-one offenses when you approach your brother for something that they've done. Other people don't know, need to know about it. They shouldn't know about it. You keep it private. They never need to know about it. You're preserving your brother's or your sister's reputation for their own well-being. Because you care for your brother. You are your brother's keeper. So you, don't want, you want to preserve his reputation. The polar opposite would be to intentionally hurt his reputation. By comparison, when a sinful behavior is continuous, when it's made public... It enters a completely different category. We will deal with that in verse 20 of this chapter in a few weeks. For an elderly man in Christ, we preserve his respect. For a brother in Christ, we preserve reputation. For an elderly woman, our key word is regard. Regard. We regard them as mothers. You know, still in this region today of the Middle East, when a neighbor encounters one of their neighbors, they refer to her as mother even if they aren't their own mother. And, and it's a, a greeting of concern. How are you, mother? And to regard, regard someone as a mother is to show that regard, that concern for her care, her well-being. It's no coincidence that our next passage, beginning in verse 3, talks about the concern of a widow. How to take care of a widow properly. You know, women so often outlive their male counterparts in our culture today. And the church is to de- demonstrate a special concern that the widows among us have their important needs met. Caring for the widows. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, right? And that are those widows... They're the ones that don't have anyone to care for them. We're going to talk about that next week. Widows, indeed. The first responsibility to care for a widow, that falls on the children and the grandchildren. Not all widows have that. So there is a time when the church has to faithfully care for the women, indeed, the mothers. We pay special regard to their needs. And then finally, in verse 2, again, broad strokes here, we treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. Our key word here for sisters in Christ is no funny business. No funny business. Come think of another R word. Throughout Leviticus, actually looking through the entire Old Testament, we discover it's a brother's responsibility to be concerned for the sisters. Concern for their purity. Concern for their reputation. To defend the sister. And sometimes that's taken as an extreme as Jacob's son did to Shechem. You know, it's not upheld as a very good example in Scripture. It's not. It's uh, it's an injustice, as we see it in Scripture, when their sister Dinah was violated. They took it into their own hands. And in reality, the brothers probably should have been a little more vigilant in caring for Dinah before all of that happened. We'll know when we get up there and talk to them. But... We in the church are to view the younger women amongst us as sisters, as sisters in Christ, and our responsibility is to protect their dignity and their honor. their Dignity and honor. And even if it comes to the point where you are to be engaged to one of them, until you put the ring on their finger, she's still exclusively a sister in Christ. You are to show her Honor. Once you extend your vows to her, she then becomes your wife and remains your sister in Christ. So we defend the women. We defend their honor, the younger women. Act with all purity, we're told. You know, Paul is warning Timothy. He's a young single man in ministry. He said, Timothy, take all these precautions. Run from anything that might look like an impropriety, right? With younger women. And, uh, you know, there are a few things in a church that look or appear as distasteful as a pastor who's too friendly. Paul's telling Timothy, beware of that. Act with all purity. That's a reminder to all young men, all young pastors, all in ministry, all who are Christians, to act with purity towards your sister. And then we have this family. Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters living together. I don't know if you grew up in a home with a lot of family members. I was the youngest of six children. Uh, Sometimes it requires some nurturing. Sometimes there's there's trouble. (laughs) I was the youngest, so I got by with everything. But it's impossible to bring a whole bunch of sinful personalities together and not encounter challenges. That's impossible. But recognizing that it was Christ himself who brought us all here, and God who brought us together, it helps. And the family grows together. And, and, you know, we want to shoot for perfection. This side of heaven, it's not going to happen. We won't be perfect. We're never going to be the cleavers. It's not going to happen. You know, there are some churches out there that give the appearance that they're the cleavers they're probably reading a script just like the Cleavers. I haven't found the perfect church yet. If I did, I'd leave it alone. Because as soon as I got there, I'd ruin it. We're not going to be like Leave it to Beaver. We also don't want to be the bunkers. We don't want to be the bunkers. And, and, and most of the time, you know, Bible teaching, Bible believing churches, they land somewhere between the Cleavers and the bunkers. We want to shoot for the cleavers. Aim for the cleavers. We don't aim for the bunkers. But by grace, God has brought us here together. He has put us, deposited us in the body. We can thank Him. He's made us all part of His family. The family of God. And I've been told that a family that eats together stays together. And, and so I'm going to call the men forward now to distribute our Lord's Supper. And, and the Lord's Supper, that's a family meal. It's a time we come together to reflect with one another about our own propensity to sin, to repent of our shortcomings, to renew ourselves to the family of God. And a one way that we do so is by symbolically eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. Symbolically. And, and it's a reminder of the bodily sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf.